This week we're starting off our series on Matthew chapter 5. I've called this series Experiencing God Where Love and Law Meet. Um, in thinking about love and law, I got to looking at this whole series as a courtroom, uh, kind of as a courtroom appearance, uh, but rather than put on a powder wig and a big black cape and a big gavel, they said I couldn't have a hammer up here. Um, we went with some things that were a little bit more subtle, um, and, and particularly I call this, this sermon today as Order in the Court. Uh, and we're going to kind of call some things to attention. First off, this black door over here, that resembles law, and this nice light colored door, that resembles love. So kind of keep that in mind. Uh, where love and law meet is, is where we're at, and uh, like I said, today is, is order in the court. We're going to look at, um, at what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, particularly, and uh, I want you to bookmark that, and I want you, because we're going to stay here in Matthew chapter 5 for the next four weeks, not in just like one verse, but the whole chapter. We're going to go through it, and so make sure throughout this month, throughout this week, as you refer back to your soap journal, and if you didn't get a soap journal, you have to listen to some messages a few weeks ago online to find out about that, but I'm sure we've got a few extras. Um, and, and read through Matthew chapter 5. Make notes about this stuff, um, and I've got some general observations I want to make. Uh, things like, first off, for, for all intent and purposes of this study, the word blessed means happy. All right, when it's used in this context, as we go through the word blessed, it means happy. And, and it, it's in reference to how we should be when we pursue the things of God rather than the world. And so if we are pursuing God, then we should be happy. That's where blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are, are the poor in spirit. If we're pursuing God, we will be happy regardless of some of the situation. That doesn't mean we're going to be like, ha ha, happy. It means we're going to be happy knowing that God has this outcome already taken care of. Okay. Um, I also want to point out as we go through this series, the true significance of, of the law. And I want to offer some hopefully practical understanding of righteousness. We're going to talk about what righteousness is. And some other things we need to remember is Christ did not come to destroy the law. All right. He came to fulfill the law. And we need to understand that Christ teaches us a true significance of the law. And for us as Christians, merely keeping the law is not enough. There's something that's needed. Something more is needed. And we're going to get into all that today. So I hope you're ready to take this journey with us. There's one more thing we need to understand today. And that's the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. It's, it's a balance. And it's a good relationship. It's not a battle. Uh, you see, in the, in, back in this time, in the context of what's happening here, it, it was almost like there was a battle where there were people who stood for the law and that was it. And there were other people who were like, I just want grace. Forget the law. And so... You can't have it that way. There's a balance here between the Old and the New Testament, and, and there's a good relationship here. The Old Testament religion was the law, like I said, and the people that Jesus is preaching to were, were basically raised on, on the Old Testament religion. They were raised on that law. And, and what we're going to gather from this is the New Testament religion, Christianity, is, is that Christ brings a new kingdom. And in bringing this new kingdom and bringing this love, he makes righteousness one of the key words in it. So you may want to write down righteousness because we're going to get into that in a second. But, but righteousness becomes the key word, whereas before it was law, and it transitions to righteousness. Uh, here's a couple of things I want to share with you. First off, man has made, man being us, uh, 32 million laws since the original Ten Commandments were handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, I think that's funny because when I went to Bible college, there was like this little Christian joke of, you know, well, they had the Ten Commandments, but that wasn't good enough. So they added like another 600 to make sure that you didn't break one of the ten. 
And we thought that was hilarious until I read the fact that since the original Ten Commandments, we have made 32 million laws. And the thing is, we've never improved on God's law. We, we thought we were, but we haven't. God's law is the charter and the guide of human liberty. There can be no liberty without God's law. And the Sermon on the Mount shows the relationship between the law and the teaching of Christ. And in the process, it puts a great demand on us as Christians. And so as we begin today, the question you have to ask yourself and that you have to settle on today is, are you ready to accept the demands and are you ready to experience God where love and law meet? Will you pray with me? Dear God, again, I just I thank you that we can come here, that we can open up your word, that we can look at what your son shared with the people around him and that we can take it and apply it to our lives. We can apply it to our community. We can apply it right here uh, in this building, but we can... Most of all, we can, we can just apply it. And, and in doing so, we'll be a better reflection of you. I pray that wherever we are, wherever, however we came into this place today, that right now we'll set aside those things that may be pulling on us. Uh, I pray that we'll, we'll set aside the deadlines for tomorrow or the forgotten things from yesterday or even the argument we may have had this morning. And, and Lord, just help us to open up our hearts and our minds to your word. And to what, would you, what you would have us know. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. As I said, we're going to start off in Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to start with verse 1. Because that's a good place to begin. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Underline righteousness if you're able to in your Bible or highlight it on your tablet, because that word's going to come up a few times. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I want to take a break right here at verse 16. We, we've, taught, we've, we've just ran through this. Blessed are all these things. And, and the, the focal point of this is not to settle in on the blessings or the Beatitudes themselves, but to look at the whole context here. But as we get into this light and dark, this salt and, and how, to, how to be a change in the earth, I came across a sermon that was preached by D.A. Carson. His message was called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and, and his confrontation with the world. I thought, that's a good title. He says this. He says, it's a very insightful illustration. He says, in Canada, it's possible to go camping hundreds of miles away from any city or town. And if it's a cloudy night and there's no phosphorus in the area, the blackness is total. Now, I've never been camping in Canada. I hope to do it one day. But he says a handheld three inches from your face cannot be seen. It's so dark. That's impressive darkness. Have you ever been 
covered in that kind of darkness? Have you ever been like pitch black, like for real? That's, that's heavy. And he says, if you're camping and, and there's no phosphorus, there's nothing else, and it's just, you can't even see your hand three inches in front of your face. He says, but if there's a city nearby and his idea of nearby is relative, perhaps a hundred miles away, the darkness is relieved from the lights of the city. A hundred miles away. Because the light from the city is reflected off the clouds and the night that was once perfectly black is no longer quite so desolate. He says, likewise, Christians who let their light shine before men cannot be hidden. And the good light they shed, uh, that they shed around attenuates the blackness, which, which would otherwise be absolute. And so first off, if we're going to experience God where love and law meet, we need to make sure that we're prepared to shine. We need to make sure that we're prepared to reflect Christ wherever we go. Not just on Mondays or on Sundays, but every day, wherever we go. It takes preparation to be able to shine like that. Have you guys seen that commercial about the human eye? Where, and it talks about, it says, They say it's so amazing that we can see the flame of one candle the distance of ten football fields away. Have you seen that commercial? That's impressive. One single candle, ten football fields away. And when I think about that, I think, you know what? The eye is impressive, but that should be us. We should be that candle. We live in a world of spiritual darkness. And when you look around at your job and at your school and the places that we live and in our community and we see this spiritual darkness, and what we have to make sure we don't do is we have to make sure that we do not blend into that spiritual darkness. Because sometimes it's easier to do that. It's, it's easier to blend into the spiritual darkness. But, but the reality is we need to shine like one of those candles in the middle of, of 10 football fields in any direction. We are not called to judge or condemn people for their actions or their lifestyle choices. We are called to be the light that reflects Christ. And we are not to hide that light ever, even if it's easier. Because sometimes it's hard to shine our light. But that's what we're called to do. We're going to pick up in verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, you can't read something like the word iota and just glance over that. All right, you have to look into that. What is an iota? And, and why would Jesus even bring that up? What's the big deal with this iota? So I started looking into it. The iota is the ninth, or depending on what study guide you look at, some people say it's the seventh, um, but it's the ninth or seventh letter in the Greek alphabet. And it's also the smallest. It's, it's even more minuscule than our, uh, our letter I, just with the dot on it. And, and it's mentioned here, as a symbol of a very minor matter in the law. But Jesus, Jesus says, this iota, the smallest matter of the law, will not pass until all is accomplished. He's, he's trying to help them understand the importance of the law. You see, God gave the law for a reason. He set up the law with Moses, and he handed it down, and he expects it to be followed for sure. And Jesus is telling them, he didn't come to change the law, because that was kind of the, the conspiracy theory about Christ and, and about people who followed him, was they were trying to change the law, and you know, nobody likes change. So we can't have you changing stuff. But Jesus says, I'm not here to change the law. I'm not here to condemn the law. I'm not here to put an end to the law. I'm here to fulfill the law. And they didn't quite get it at this time. Because you see, then the law required sacrifice for atonement. Whenever you broke the law, it required a sacrifice to fix that. And Jesus is telling them, he said, the law is still in place. Nothing changes that. 
But when he says that he has come to fulfill the law, he is telling them that he has come to be the final sacrifice. That he has come and his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection are fulfillment of what God requires for forgiveness under the law. The law still remains to this day. You still should not murder. You should not uh, commit adultery. You should not lie. Uh, Children, you should honor your mother and father. All those things remain to this day, but we are to hold on to it with love and not legalism. You see, he's changing a mindset of the tradition and the legalism that's been in place for generations. We're going to pick back up in Matthew uh, chapter 5, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, there's righteousness again. I want to get into that a little bit. I want to explain this whole righteousness thing. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they'd they'd kind of made their own righteousness, if you will, before men. They they had become into a habit of of praying loud and long and and out in public. Um, Their giving was was more out of excess and not out of faith uh, as they they would approach the the collection plates. They they made sure that people knew what they did and and that people heard what they did and, and people knew how great they were. So what does it mean to say that our righteousness must exceed theirs because it doesn't seem to me that they were very righteous? Here's what it means. It means that their righteousness was not after God's heart. It also means that our, on our own, we are not, we're, let me say this differently, on our own, we are not able to obtain righteousness. We don't have it in us. But we were made righteous in the sight of God. Not, not because of how awesome we are, but we are, we are accepted as righteous and we are treated as righteous by God on account of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because he was the one who was made sin. And, and because he was made sin, we are made righteous. And, and when he was on the cross, he was treated as if he were a sinner, even though he was perfect and holy and pure. And now, because of that, we are treated as if we are righteousness, as if we are righteous. Even though we're defiled and depraved and perverse, this righteousness is not because of us. It's on account of what Jesus has endured on our behalf. Because of this, his death on the cross, we are treated as if we fulfilled the law of God. As we, almost like we'd never been exposed to its penalty. That's, that's that righteousness. When we go before God, when we ask forgiveness, when we, when we know we're broken, when we know we've done something stupid and we're, we're looking to repent and rededicate and start fresh, this is, what, this is what fulfillment of that law is. Because the requirement of law is death. But it's been fulfilled. And because of that fulfillment, we are made righteous when we humble ourselves before the Lord. We have received this gift of righteousness from the God of all mercy and grace, and to Him be the glory. Amen? My friends, that's where love and law meet. Because what we deserve is death. Yet God chose to give us righteousness and forgive us forgiveness and love and restoration instead of death. If that doesn't change the way you understand the love God has for us, I don't know what will. But if, if you want to truly experience God where love and law meet, you have to make the first move. The Bible, it's yours to study. It's yours to read, to pray over, to understand. And let me tell you, if you're not spending time in God's word, you will never be a city on a hill. If you are not putting yourself in scripture, you will never be a light that shines anywhere. You won't ever be the salt of the earth. You won't be able to counterbalance any of the temptations in life 
without an understanding and a love for the Word of God. You will continue to be biblically illiterate. Well, that's harsh, Fat Rock. Yes, it is. But that's what we're becoming. We are turning into a nation of biblically illiterate people. We are blindly following the next gimmick or the next cool thing. Listen to this. George Barna wrote a book. It was called The State of the Church. He wrote it in 2002. Now, this is 2002. This is a couple years ago. Um, Barna conducted a survey of self-pronounced Christians. And, and here's what he found out about their knowledge of the Bible. Now, these are Christians, self-pronounced Christian people. 48% could not name the four Gospels. They're in the New Testament, by the way, if you're thinking, what are they? It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay? 48%. 52% could not identify more than two or three of the 12 disciples. Now, I figured that some of you would corner me after the service and call me out on it and see if I knew the names of the disciples, so I looked them up. And in case you're wondering, <laughs> Andrew, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him and was replaced by Matthias. So there you have it. I know all of them because I wrote them down. <laughs> I do know them, but there's a lot of pressure when y'all are staring at me. <laughs> you got to make sure. Next one, 60% of, of American Christians can't name even five of the Ten Commandments. This is my favorite one right here. And I'm not making this up. This is, this is true. 61% of American Christians think the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. <laughs> That's true. I can't make this up. I'm serious. That's in the book. It, it was part of his survey. 71% um, of Christians think God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. It's not. George Barnes says that he says, Americans, we revere the Bible. We, we appreciate the Bible. But by and large, they don't know what it says. And because they don't know what they don't know what it says, they don't know it. They have become a nation of biblical illiterates. And, and just like people in this Barnapole, they're, they're biblically illiterate people. Christians, we're just becoming far too ignorant of the Word of God. No, no wonder we're failing at, at love and law. Because we can't understand law because it's just easier to, to judge somebody and to cast them out and to get them away from us than it is to love. It's, it's no wonder we're failing to finish our marathon race on this earth. Christians by the thousands are falling prey to false teachers of our day. We're, we're falling prey to the junk food that's being fed to us by our world, and we accept it. And we're not feeding ourselves on the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, we are desperately in need of a solid, good diet of Scripture. We need to get into spiritual shape. That's one of the reasons that things like our Sunday evening studies are important. That's why it's a big deal to me when Andy's like, hey, the Fellowship Bay is wide open and we are ready to go because that means our junior and senior high kids are going to be back there tonight worshiping and being fed and, and spiritually fed and, and physically fed and they're going to be challenged by the Word of God. And it's awesome. That's why it's exciting for me when I say, hey men, we're doing this, this bring it and burn it. Yeah, it's just a, it's a cookout. Okay, I get it. But it's a cookout that kicks off our Bible study where we can talk about being men, being spiritual leaders in our homes and in our communities. Same thing for our ladies. It's why our Sunday evening study for our ladies is so important because it brings in this diet of Scripture and an opportunity to, to chew on it and to digest it and to share it and to build ourselves up with it. It's whenever we do something like a church-wide study or something like that, we need to be all in, willing to spend time in God's Word together for accountability and understanding across the board of what Scripture says. 
When we do those things, we can indeed be blessed and we will inherit the kingdom of God. And we'll also understand how to experience God where love and law meet. Quick side note here about the apostles and, and the 12 that followed Jesus. They were just ordinary men. There was, there was nothing fancy about them. They were ordinary men that God used in extraordinary ways. Among these 12 were fishermen, a tax collector, a revolutionary. And the Gospels, the great thing I love about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that they record the constant failings, struggles, and doubts of these 12 men who followed Christ for about three years of their life. Men who walked with Jesus physically still had failings and struggles. But after witnessing Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven, the Holy Spirit transformed these disciples into powerful men of God who turned our world upside down. What was the change? The change was they had been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus. May the same thing be said for us. We need to be with Jesus day in and day out. We need to be in his word. We need to be in prayer. We need to be with Jesus. We need to walk with Jesus. We need to live our life with Jesus when no one else is looking. We need to be in Jesus in order to experience God where love and law meet. We need to be with Jesus. It's the only way that this ever gets off the ground. As we come to our response time today, no one believed this. When Jesus said in verse 17 in Matthew chapter 5, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Know this and believe this. In fulfilling the law, he brought God's love for us, and he made it something we can actually understand and live out. He lived it first, and in dying for us, he expressed the importance of love over law. Uh, we can be right some of the time, just because this is what it says, and, and I know there are a lot of black and white people in our culture, and, and you draw the line, and, and that's good to be right some of the time, but we need to love all of the time. So where are you in this courtroom of life? And as we look at these next few weeks, as we really get into Matthew chapter 5, I want to challenge you to think about where you're at in a courtroom of life. Are you like the Pharisee? You want people to see how good you are? Maybe you're on the side of legalism. This is what it says. And that's it. Done. You want to make sure everyone knows you're right even when you're wrong. Somebody said you can do that just by being louder. Why are you looking at me? <laughs> are you struggling maybe with the fact that you don't deserve righteousness? That's something that, that I've struggled with. Because I haven't always been the perfect minister that I am today. Yeah. I'm t- <laughs> really? That bad? I know where I've come from. And I know where some of you have come from. And I'll tell you, righteousness is tough. Thinking that, that God thinks I'm righteous, that scares me. Sometimes I don't know what to do with the righteousness that I've been giving and, uh, given. And, and maybe you're not sure to do with that love that you've discovered. Now's your opportunity to respond to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And maybe for you, that response is in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Maybe for you, it's time to repent from something that's been weighing you down. Maybe you're that legalistic person who's just been chopping people off at the spiritual knee and, and not giving them love and not bringing that around full circle. And you just want to rededicate, admitting you've allowed yourself to become less than average. And, and with rededication and prayer and accountability, you can once again 
be back on track to being a reflection of Christ, which we should all be striving for. We've got our elders are here. They'd love to pray with you. Maybe it's time for you to partner with us to join Huntsville Christian Church as we move forward in our community, serving and loving and being the example and being the hands and feet of Jesus. But whatever your response is today, remember that when you come to the place where love and law meet, 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The law is good, but love is greater than the law. Will you stand and sing with us and respond accordingly? It's been great to worship with you all this morning, but now it's time to go, like Joe said earlier. As you go this week, go seeking righteousness. I have one last thing I want to share with you. Dana Curry and Heather Mercer were the two American Christian aid workers who were being held by the Taliban under threat of death during September 11, 2001, and that attack on America. The, resulting, uh, the, the result of that whole thing was they, read, they wrote a book, and, and they opened their book. It's called Prisoners of Hope, and they opened it up with these words, To the Afghan people whom we so dearly love, These words reflect the heart of Christians who are willing to risk persecution and perhaps death for the sake of taking the gospel to the lost. Those who are without Christ as a personal Savior and Lord. They also wrote here, To our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Your everlasting love healed our hearts and set us free. May we honor and love you with all that we are for all of our days. You see that? that, That's having the righteousness of God is to have a surrendered heart to His will regardless of the cost. Blessed are those who will undergo persecution for the sake of righteousness of Christ. And when you find yourself in that place where you're not sure what's going on and you're in that place where love and law meet, the only way to experience God there is to look for opportunities to share the righteousness of love rather than the condemnation of law. After all, that's what God chose to do for us. Shouldn't we choose to do the same thing for others? Think about that this week and look for opportunities to share the love and to be that reflection and that righteousness of Christ. Have a great week.